Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Ho ho ho! Merry Elfsmas listeners. This is Santa Claus. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Get, I can't sustain the Santa Claus voice. Yeah, I, I, I can't. Was, I can't bring I myself tell, to do it. I can tell you were struggling right from the off. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I won't be struggling to do, and that's that's talk about a movie that features Nazi elves. I mean, I can't believe there aren't more movies <laughs> that feature hey, Nazi elves. We you you needed you needed some magic. You needed you needed the year nineteen eighty nine. You needed uh, late career Dan Haggerty. This the, the, this was a kind of a kind of cinema that just can't be made anymore. Back when back when Hollywood executives had, had a glint in their eye, when Tinseltown still had the holiday tinsel hanging up. We've 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 lost the beauty that that brought us elves. I really think, I really think that you know, uh, Hollywood has got to like self censoring because it would never release a Christmas movie now, which opens with like people declaring a war on Christmas. The war on Christmas <laughs> is real, uh, and it is being led by the occult sisters of anti Christmas. Um, oh yeah, I, for, I, for, I forgot. We're convening the first meeting of the Sisters of Anti Christmas today, um, and you need to join the struggle, comrades. You need to join the struggle. The, they're, they're right. These psychic spiritual warriors of the forest are completely correct. Um, you should be on their side. This is this is brilliant. This, this is this is how we win. Ultimately, we need to team up. Um, Santa Claus, I fe- a, a bunch of late eighties goth girls. <laughs> uh, there's what 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 can beat us with with these these comrades by our side i mean i mean as anti-fascist coalitions go uh saint nicholas the late 80s goth girl that's a powerful combination yes <laughs> uh, hello <laughs> no I'm, I'm, I'm like it's 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 about the time we usually start the pricey but i I think there's been one episode where I introduced my own me doing the pricey, and that was the weirdest experience I've ever had. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I got you. It's fine. Don't worry. Um, well, <laughs> I feel I can't help but feel there's you've got some stuff to cut here. It's fine. Um, I can't help but feel that people maybe will need some context for what we've just been talking about. Um, and I get it. This film is criminally underseen we are talking about 1989's elves um one of those great horror movies that tells you a lot just in its one word title uh and i'm so glad that i get confirmation that the one (laughs) thing i can contribute to this show is setting up ash to tell you and to tell me what today's film is about uh, since since the film is about elves, I've decided to read the entire Pricey in Elvish. <laughs> oh my god. High school high school me could have. High school me could have. But like all great scholars, I have forgotten Elvish. But um a little Latin joke for the kids. I have an unserious serious question. 
what the hell does the 1989 movie Elves, starring Dan Haggerty and largely about a neo-Nazi elf conspiracy, have to say about our current political moment? You could say that the sub-Muppets puppetry of the titular elves, Haggerty's outstandingly hammy acting, or the sheer brazen absurdism of the plot are in fact too absurd to be anything above a bit of fun. Then again, it's hard to watch a movie about a creeping fascist takeover of an otherwise benign bit of everyday life without developing a thousand-yard stare. The film's asinine plot allows it to become too weirdly real. I look out to the world and see contemporary fascists making statements about train policy gone woke or cat girls on TikTok. Finding out that modern-day fascists had a fixation on elves would be totally unsurprising. This could be some syncretic sect or a new frontier of the Reich culture wars. But when someone says Nazi elves, I can hear that in the voice of any given right-wing pundit. It's hard not to laugh at elves, but then again, there are gradations to laughter. My laughter began to haunt me during my second viewing of elves. This wasn't the laughter I have for a bad horror movie, but the gallows laughter I share with my comrades when grimly mocking some pro-fascist pundit. I laugh at elves the same way I laugh at the likes of Alex Jones or Ben Shapiro. A piteous laugh at the farce of a dire political moment. They are so unserious, so silly, and so dire in the directions they pipe an unwitting audience. Elves is not a pro-fascist movie but it rings with their seriously unserious dialogues. The film is only a few steps away from being a full-fledged parody of War on Christmas right-wing culture war messaging. What remains after the laughter at Gallo's humor? Traditionally, a hanging. But what if there could be something more? What if we could do more than dissolve the rope, but render the very social fabric that constructs the hanging neutral? Gallo's laughter breaks, and in that silence we can survive. Reprieve. Oh, take reprieve, dear listeners. But the curtains closed does not have to signal the end of our tale. We've made a ready home of the gallows, but so too should we of the unserious stage. Become less than serious with us as we discuss elves. Yes. Uh, and yes, for the record, this is a profoundly uh, uh, anti-fascist piece of cinema. Oh, supremely. <laughs> like, I, I, I mean that completely seriously. Um, I, okay, I think first first of all... Yeah, it's up there with El Conde, I agree. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I think first of all, um, I, I think in order to properly engage with all of the nuances of this film, um, I'm, we're going to need you to sort of provide some context for appreciating this as Dan Haggerty cinema. Ooh, okay, we're going to have some fun. Dan Haggerty, born 1942, died 2016, just a few short years ago. Uh, born in Wisconsin, uh, which should tell you so much of what you need to know. Dan Haggerty did serve a 90-day jail sentence for a cocaine charge, which, I mean, salute. I mean, I- I mean, yeah, but that's also practically obligatory if you were famous in the 1980s. Yeah, I mean, an, an actor from the 1980s doing a token jail stint for cocaine? Whoa! It, it, <laughs> inconceivable! 
but what Dan Haggerty is most known for is uh, an independent picture and a uh, television series based on the movie called The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams. Uh, this this was uh, pretty much pretty much unheard of today. No one knows this. It's from the seventies. The basic plot is that Dan Haggerty plays uh, Grizzly Adams, the 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 titular John Capen Grizzly Adams, uh, who is falsely convicted of murder and has to kind of like uh, become a woodsman and live in the the Great American Frontier, where he frees a grizzly bear cub who becomes his buddy, and they have adventures. That's it. That's it. It's it's just it's just it's just Dan Haggerty who looks like a grizzly bear hanging out with a grizzly bear for two seasons in a feature length film, uh, as they have uh, adventures and shenanigans. That's it. That's so, that's that's why Dan Haggerty's in a bunch of random terrible horror movies is because he was one of the most famous TV stars of the day in the seventies, but then like fell off the radar. So I, I, I've got to ask, what, what is your relationship with Grizzly Adams? So I, I've, I watched a lot of weird retro TV when I was a kid. It just kind of, it's just kind of, I mean, like, I don't know. Ooh, shocking. But, but like, just kind of a this thing that be, happened to This me. will be such a surprise to anyone who listens to this show. Right? It's a, so I, I watched some Grizzly Adams. I'm familiar with the character. Um, I, you know, Dan Haggerty obviously is a star of a ton of bad horror movies, elves included. So it's just a, just a reoccurring character. And also, I, I think there's like an interesting discursive turn we can have with the character of Grizzly Adams and the acting career of Dan Haggerty. Because we tend to, especially in the digital age, we tend to somehow think that we've immortalized our culture, right? And that, and that whatever's hot in this current moment will resound and echo through the halls of human history ad infinitum. But like, you know... Probably, probably no one listening. Maybe a handful of horror movie weirdos know who Dan Haggerty is. Yeah. Probably, probably fewer of them have seen Grizzly Adams, right? Like, shrug. And, and the same can be said for like any successful, super popular art form today. It might seem culturally ubiquitous, but like by and by, that stuff will be washed away by time and tide. Like, I don't know if there's ever been a Blu-ray release of The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, or if that's in like the Library of Congress or something. But in a way, there is a kind of immortality to that, right? If it mm-hmm. if it's in the Library of Congress, and like, obviously, I did, I, I didn't watch Grizzly Adams, wasn't a thing. But like, there's a kind of long tradition of the American outdoorsman mm-hmm. that this all seems to kind of slot into, which definitely carries with it its own cultural politics. So, so to kind of like join the dots here, uh, who does Dan Haggerty play in this film? The true great American outdoorsman, Santa Claus. Yeah, yeah, the mall Santa. <laughs> he is the mall Santa. The true icon of American freedom, of American exceptionalism, of like decency and courage. The mall Santa. But I'm, we, will, I'm, we, I was, I was going to say like, I'm sorry, but Santa Claus, uh, uh, his his entire life is defined by the freedom given to him by a personal vehicle. Um, he, he is he is a capitalist of the finest order employing unpaid laborers to fuel his empire. Um, he is engaged in an uh, international spying apparatus that has perfect knowledge of everyone's misdeeds. And he believes in castle doctrine as n- who has been to, to, to Santa Claus's home without invitation. Nobody is allowed in that thing. Right. Like he, he must be. Th- he, I guarantee you Santa has guns. <laughs> Uh, I mean, doesn't Santa get like 
technical support from NORAD. Like, it's it's all that. You're completely correct. <laughs> yeah, the NORAD Santa tracker. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're just telling you the truth. <laughs> oh, yep, yep, yep. Oh, dear. We're going to... This, this episode is going to be like... Abrupt and jarring changes of tone. Dot mp3. <laughs> well, it, if we should, we should get into that because um, that is not just us projecting something onto this film, but is baked into this film's very formal qualities. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, I think we have to talk. Like we don't do this often on the show, but we are going to have to talk about the certain dialogue choices that are made in this movie because. This film has an absolutely buck wild script. All right. All right. I want to make you a deal. You read that first line and I will read the the line said by our protagonist's younger brother. Yeah. Uh, okay. So our protagonist goes to see uh, a mall Sansa and sits on set. Our protagonist who is a hot late 80s goth girl uh, goes to see Santa <laughs> and Santa says that Sa- he wants something for Christmas and the line is Santa was <laughs> Santa said oral um, brilliant brilliant just mm, to me that's cinema <laughs> <laughs> Lars von Trier could never write like that L- Lars von Trier tries but he could never get close to that <laughs> nymphomania colon holiday edition (laughs) yeah the secret the secret third volume of nymphomaniac is just (laughs) it's just it just includes nazi elves oh yeah the the overlap of the missing volume of capital and the missing volume of nymphomania yeah it's all it's all done through the nazi elves So, so it, 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 we'll be talking about family abolition and strange family dynamics later in the show. Uh, but to, to kind of give you a, a, a this is this is an amuse bouche of of the fucked family discourse that's about to happen here. But our, our again, our protagonist is is changing outfits in in what she believes to be the privacy of her bedroom, but her little brother is spying on her, and when he's caught, um, instead of a thousand normal things that a little brother could have said. Uh, uh, he reads the following line. You've got fucking big tits and I'm going to tell everyone. Which... Uh, I, just a, a choice. A choice. A bit strange. You know, <laughs> can you tell that the 80s was a great time for screenwriters who did cocaine? I can't just, tell. And, and again, like little brother has some banger lines because like after the elves start attacking, you know, like mom's like, what's going on? And he was like, it's that fucking little ninja troll. Oh, I I love that line. <laughs> my 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 favorite line in this movie is a Dan Haggerty line, uh, delivered with Dan Haggerty's usual like masculine woodsy bravado. Uh, uh, what are you, a goddamn Nazi or something? Is that elf yours? Uh, and the and answer just, to both oof. of those questions is yes. <laughs> this, this is the rare movie where the answer to both of those is yes. <laughs> it's it's. Again, this is not this is not always strictly speaking a formal point, but I do think we have to talk about the absolutely weird family dynamics in this film. We really we really need to discuss the weird family dynamics and what I can only describe as an abridged version of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> okay, 
Okay. Okay. Now we've now we have um now we've annoyed all of the Tolkien <laughs> fans who listen to this. Um I'm gonna need you to unpack both of those sentences you just said. Oh so so, so okay, this 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 is a film, right, that is about elves, but it's also actually about the the kind of like collapsing economic situation we find ourselves in and the threat of a rising fascism that the current power structure seems unconcerned with uh, uh leaving us to trust a a mystic if you will that seems to come and go as he please he's itinerant he has strange powers he and uh, uh so in the beginning of our tale this strange mystic not only sets our heroes in motion but he has to leave them suddenly to do what you might be asking uh, uh, go conduct occult research to establish whether or not his his uh, dire portents are true. Like this is this is really just the Lord of the Rings. I, I don't I don't see how it's not just obvious. Dan Haggerty is Gandalf. <laughs> like it's just it's in the text. I I <laughs> I actually uh, I actually agree with you, and I think you put forward a very radical reading of both this film. Um, and coincidentally, the Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm sort of just, just trying to like shift totally the derailed gears us. Uh, Let's talk about families in, on, on a formal level here. Yeah, we we did say there'd be a lot of jarring changes of direction in this episode. <laughs> so so okay. so the, the the family dynamic. We have our protagonist, right? Uh, uh, t- teenage t- teenage goth girl. Um, and we're, we're referring to a goth, her as a goth, uh, not because of her attire, but because of her soul, because she is a member of the Sisters of Anti Christmas. Uh, this is, of course, uh, Kirsten, uh, Brooke, and Amy. Yes, they are. They are young, older teenage girls who are trying to start some kind of like anti patriarchal, pro feminist cult club association and it starts with the sisters of anti-christmas but then they keep workshopping that throughout the film yeah yeah <laughs> i think they i think they hit it at the start i think they should have kept going that was fire the first album was the best <laughs> the, the, oh, this is, uh, the, oh my god you, when, you once, hate christmas too uh name three of the sisters of anti-christmas movies <laughs> <laughs> This is, the Sisters of Anti Christmas was so good, but then when the Bat Cave closed down, they really couldn't find a place to keep the shows going. <laughs> so okay, so I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna try and talk about the film as sort of straightforwardly as possible. Um, so they do this ritual in the woods. Uh, she she cuts her hand doing it. The blood uh, awakens an ancient demonic christmas elf uh the elf is in fact a central figure in a contemporary nazi plot to bring about the aryan master race that hitler had always dreamed of um by by <laughs> by uh, by uh, using it, it, there's a, the elves are also part of this kind of pseudo religious cult in in uh, World War Two Nazism. Um, Kirsten is the last pure remaining Aryan virgin, um, and the elves want to impregnate her 
uh, to produce a race of super soldiers. And the only one standing between them is, <laughs> is the former alcoholic ex-cop Mike McGavin, who has just been evicted from his trailer and is working as a mall Santa. And, and he's also, he's living in the mall's boiler room, and I've got to say, I've lived in apartments that are just like that. So Yeah, I, I was like, I feel oh, it. yeah, that's, that's the apartment I had when I was 26. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's living in the mall's boiler room, a.k.a. the most affordable flat in central London. Uh, and, of course, and, of course, very low heating bills. And, frankly, he needs to stop complaining. <laughs> yeah, where's that entrepreneurial spirit? Um... Okay, so so okay, first we yeah, we have to talk about we have to talk about Kirsten's family situation. Um and I again, just how would you describe this for someone who's not seen the film? So Kirsten's mom hates her. Her little brother hates her. Uh, uh grandpa doesn't hate her, but he doesn't hate her for a reason that's arguably worse than hating her. <laughs> And, and, and what is and what is that reason? Pray tell. Uh, uh, I, I was a little misleading when I referred to Grandpa as 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 her grandfather because he's also her father, and his mom yeah. is also her sister. Yes. And I don't know what that actually makes her brother because the genealogy math is starting to get a little complicated. Um, but basically, uh, Grandpa had a kid with his own daughter to keep continue a purified bloodline and the granddaughter he he tries to protect her because he needs her for the nazi elf experiments which he's now reluctantly a part of but like i'm sorry granddad you're not doing a good job of being reluctant in this film which uh, no, is interesting no, discursively. No, just just a, just very eager to do um basically like of fascist eugenics <laughs> but well, but this time but this time magic well and, and i <laughs> and i think that's a good pivot into the discourse zone too because like kind of kind of materially what politics does grandpa have right because he's not he's no longer in support of the nazi occult elf magic eugenics ploy what is with us lately john it's been in the last like two months how many movies have we done that have featured some kind of like celtic eugenic wizard thing going on like what is yeah, there's, there's too much mystical phrenology lately yeah uh my my sacred sickle and my calipers are getting so much work during this winter period and frankly i can't wait to put this all behind me but 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 thinking about grandpa's like particular modality of resistance here right he's chosen silence right he's effectively gone on to just observe what's going on and i find that to be quite a contemporary liberal way of resisting fascist encroachment into everyday life you know it's it's enough for him that he does nothing rather than taking some kind of active form of resistance against something he allegedly is opposed to yeah it's like uh, it's like hashtag resist he's a hashtag resist lib um <laughs> Like, but but also this this kind of he's ties a, he's together. He's a slacktivist. This time, but this ties together. You're quite right. Like it's a it's a very like liberal, um, you know, non-complicit watching. Right. That's but to to obfuscate your own inherent complicity within fascism because fascism is not, of course, not distinct from liberal capitalism. It is it is 
capitalism in decay, right? It's it's an outgrowth of a necrotic liberalism. And of course, yes, absolutely. The the, the source. Like, even if you, okay, even if you strip out the Nazi elf eugenicism, um, there's this weird kind of familial incest dynamic, mm-hmm. um, which which seems to be, almost, like, on, a, on some level, this film is basically like family abolition propaganda. Yes. <laughs> because you can just go, well, yeah, this is what the liberal nuclear family is designed to do. It's... Right, this is exactly what it's designed to do. Um, mm-hmm. The whole point is we have to get this, we have to keep this uh, young woman uh, a pure virgin until we can appropriately oversee her pregnancy, her gestational labor, and the and this kind of social and uh, mm-hmm. biological reproduction that she's expected to participate within. Right, and and it's really easy to queer these discourses too because of how of how hard this movie leans into the family abolition stuff. You know, because like. You know, like her entire like biological family, this nuclear family unit is is in place in order to exactly as you just said, extract her gestational labor, right? But then, like you know, we we have this kind of like you know, kind of metaphorical chosen family, right? There's something that we can queer here, where it's a, a a homeless mall Santa and her two high school buddies who are actually supportive of her and her future on material and emotional levels. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Very found family. Elves, a movie about family. <laughs> we 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 talked about this quite a lot, but like all horror movies are, at the end of the day, about friendship and communism. <laughs> <laughs> Elves is very much that. Uh, and if you if you like if you like friendship and communism, then I can't recommend more. Uh, than subscribing to the Horror Vanguard Patreon. Um, you can do it through horrorvanguard.com. You can sign up for just a few dollars a month. You can support the show. You can get early access. And you can give us suggestions on what you would like to see covered, um, as well as make some friends with the rest of the Horror Vanguard listeners. Uh, it's Christmas. It's Christmas. Why not? <laughs> do it. It's Christmas. It's great. That's great. So Santa wants something for Christmas, and that's a uh, a subscription to the Horror Vanguard Patreon. Uh, and not oral. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a fucking big subscription to the Horror Vanguard Patreon, and I'm going to tell everyone. <laughs> God, this script is incredible. This script is, is incredible. Who are you? A Horror Vanguard listener? Is that Patreon subscription yours? What are you? Some kind of communist? <laughs> Oh yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is good. I think if we're going to talk about the, you know, mini ninja troll, um, if we're going to talk about elves, if we're going to talk about the titular elves, we have to talk about Operation Paperclip. You know, this is this is one of those weird move moments in like horror cinema. It reminds me a lot of like Nightmare on Elm Street, where it's like. Oh yeah, yeah. If if the American war apparatus didn't extract a bunch of Nazi researchers to further our own military aims, we wouldn't have elves. <laughs> uh, 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 Nazis in America? How on earth did they get here? Hmm. Arf. <laughs> <laughs> and this is and this is something that comes up every time we do a horror movie that's got Nazis displaced in time, right? Because we have. 
as always, a, a kind of stark reminder that that denazification was an incomplete project, right? De, uh, uh, so many Nazis were not denazified, if you will. They were shuffled. You know, they went to the most powerful governments in the world. They went into hiding and, you know, by and large, were not sought after. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the, the project of denazification was... You went only insofar as it didn't impinge upon American or British or other national interests. Yes. I mean, this was uh, a kind of big um, motivation of like the student movement and the uh, yep. the RAF in Germany, the Baden-Meinhof group, um, who made the very sensible point that actually denazification hadn't really happened in any substantial way. And these people were still in control of all of the institutions of European fascism. Um, which had now just been people were, oh well we won so it's over and actually the process of dealing with fascism requires a far more extensive um, critique uh, an active engagement with both history politics and the social field than than any 20th century liberal was happy to countenance yeah an actual denazification would have had to de- re- extract the fascist element from the system itself would it would have involved a societal restructuring and, uh, and, a, yeah. and a massive shift in, in access to material resources and control over the production of material. And mm, uh, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. It's very. In- I, wonder, I wonder how denazification was handled in Western Europe versus how it was handled in Eastern Europe. And what might account for the differences there? I, I don't know. I've, I've no idea. What could it have been? <laughs> But then, but then we don't get like really, really heartfelt movies about a teenager who wins a rocket making contest and gets to shake hands with Werner von Braun. <laughs> uh, so yeah, who's, I, to, who's to say? Who's who's to say if it's good or not? So yes, there are, are Nazis in America, and um, I, I, I think what's interesting we we talked about Krampus as well. Oh, did we ever? And I think there's something interesting about this idea of folklore is not geographically determined. Folklore is determined by the folk who tell the stories. Um, elves, I think, are have been talked about in European um, and Mediterranean folklore for at least a thousand years. Um, I mean, Geoffrey Chaucer... Uh, thought that they were analogous to demons back in uh, in the Canterbury mm-hmm. Tales. So it's not a surprise that they end up in the United States as well, right? But what do you think about this intersection with the... I think there are three points that we kind of need to unpick here, which is the relationship between the occult and elves and the occult elves and fascism. Uh, the first thing I want to say is that there's a good chance that a Spanish language release of this movie included a poster that said Duende above the title. And if anyone can get me that for either this or I know the Argentinian release of Leprechaun was called Duende. Um, niche, niche interest. But if, any can, if anyone can get me a Duende poster, uh, you will be rewarded by Santa Claus next holiday season. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for for all of you real duende heads out there um no but the so the occult origins of 
uh, elves and is I, I think really interesting when we when we kind of compare and contrast it with the the kind of occult origins of the Nazi party and Nazis and the broader fascist assimilation of folkloric iconography that this movie is kind of just like very openly and very clearly playing with and playing in that space. Right. And one of the things about that that I find to be really interesting is that, uh, that a lot of how we talk about Nazi Germany in particular out of all fascist parties has become kind of like, woefully interwoven with its own mythologies so yes like, i think that's i think that's completely true mm-hmm. and and this is this is a good example of that right to, to talk about the, the occult nazi stuff because if you turn on the history channel every single show now is occult nazi aliens in the antarctic and those programs kind of play into this mythology of oh the nazis weren't uh, a political party with material goals the nazis were I, I don't know the successors of some kind of ancient cult you know they 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 were they were the wellspring of some german romantic uh, uh folk belief system and i think that that kind of thinking one it plays into the the mythologies that the nazis themselves wanted to produce because that that's literally how they talk about themselves right and and that is it's deeply you know, I'll say problematic because we're academics, but it sucks that that's the discourse being reproduced. But on top of that, like it obscures the material relations. It obscures what the Nazis wanted to do politically. It obscures how they were organized. It obscures how their party grew in Weimar Germany and came to take over. You know, when we when we elevate them to the status of this pseudo mythical, you know, like thing that was destined to happen, we kind of likewise shrink our own potential to resist them using any kind of political means. Yeah, because you essentialize it, right? You go, well, yes. this, mm-hmm. you go, oh, well. And then you end up doing like weird quasi-fascist moves yourself when you go, oh, well, it was just something about the German character, right? Mm-hmm. And honestly, still, I, you know, I, I've, I've been banging the drum about so much of uh, Ernst Bloch's work, but like Heritage of Our Time is maybe the landmark work on the... Uh, class sociology of Weimar era Germany written by a communist who understood what it was that fascism offered to people. So Bloch made the point that actually fascism was neither inevitable nor was it this kind of like occultic thing. It was a very cleverly and deliberately designed political project that didn't just appeal to people's material interests but activated their kind of like aspirations and used these esoterical theological or religious impulses selectively and with the right kinds of people in order to like embed itself into the kind of consciousness of these people so Mm -hmm. i think blocks heritage of our time is is weirdly a, a kind of must read if you want to understand who it was that found like uh, fascism in the 30s a kind of palatable answer to the questions they were facing and why mm-hmm. and more importantly the reasons that the, the the kind of left political project or the communists and socialists failed to engage these people so a uh, block i think a big a big problem is that we often go like well fascism is we fall into the answer of the second international he were like fascism is like oh it's a delusion of ideology you know people just if they know the truth then and Bloch was like, no, 
No, no, people believe. People people don't need to know what the truth is. People need a better alternative. And if you don't have a politics that is actually going to engage people, not just not just materially, but but sort of artistically, spiritually, even, then the, then you know this is how fascism wins. Like it will use every weapon at its disposal. Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And I think there's this there's this kind of bizarre reluctance on the left to like cede territory. And this is something we talked about. I, I mean, like, God, at least as far back as Green Room with Meredith Graves, where we were yeah. talking about Nazi punk. But like, you know, and especially like, you know, like the the kind of like skinhead oi, you know, turned to the right that was, you know, largely successful. You know, so, so far as to like an entire music genre and, you know, fashion aesthetic became associated with like proto-fascist movements in the UK. Yeah, I mean, States. if we if we if we abandon the terrain of things like um, the you know the the theosophical or the the religious or the imaginative or the aesthetic, the the right won't right. The, mm-hmm. Like the, in, in a way, the entire project of Horror Vanguard is about like the revivifying of the the dark side of our collective socialist imagination. So, like when we say that, like. Elves is is primarily an anti. It is explicitly an anti-fascist film. It's like yes, because uh, and you can laugh at it, and that's what that's one of the most kind of positive things about the film is that it, it like f- in in a sense fascism depends on its glamour to be appealing. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and this is this is about the de-glamorization of the occult power of Nazism. Like, I, I think it's so important in this. I was going to talk about Sham 69 for a second, but I think I'd rather talk about bad elf puppets because that's a bit yeah. more on topic. I, this is exactly what I was thinking of. Go on. Yeah, yeah. And this is, this is just building directly off of what you just said. I think it's really important that in this movie, like, I'm sure the real reason why there's like, there's just like an upper, upper body elf armature, essentially, like 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 a non-articulated puppet. And and it moves like Kermit the Frog, right? It can't, it, it's not articulated, so it just kind of like swings about dramatically. And I'm sure the reason that there's one of those they made for the movie is is because it's hard to make those and to get somebody to make more than one would just cost too much money. Yeah. You know, so fuck it. We have one and we're going to deal with it. But I think it winds up becoming very politically important, right? Because like a, a, a lavish, even if it was grotesque and unsettling to look upon, but like, a, a, a well-built lavish elf puppet or even even worse if this was like if they had like a, a young orlando bloom as like a sexy elf like that would be really bad that would be playing into this kind of mysticism from one end or the other but instead we have like this this laughing stock this this ridiculous little like sub gremlin of a puppet yeah 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 exactly and like the the entire point is is like this should be unbelievable. This should be this should be something that you kind of intuitively reject, because it's part of that kind of block block quite wonderfully calls it the swindle of liberation, right? You you it's it's you are made an offer uh, by by uh, the the Nazis, and it's like it's an offer that is appealing on levels that go beyond the material but this is like when you look at the 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 actual material the stuff of this elf you can't help but be sort of repulsed by it oh i i I completely agree and that's so so vital to to how we approach this movie and this i think is like 
also also really really i mean like oh, this whole movie is just really fun and, and really useful when it comes to these political discourses but i think like this the setting of this film is also really important because so much of the kind of start of the action of this movie right the, the whole second act really is inside of a mall uh, or a department store right mm-hmm. yes yeah it's like a department store santa well, let's 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 talk about the department store. Let's talk about let's talk about the 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 shopping center. Let's talk about the mall. Shopping mall. Doom, 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 doom. Yeah. Oh, so God, remember shopping mall. What a great movie. Oh, there now there is there is a movie there is a movie, and the the un the the much underrated uh, spinoff film Chopin Mall, which mm, just didn't didn't quite get the numbers. No, 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 no. But, um, we're here. We're here all night, everyone. Uh, make sure to tip your servers. <laughs> this is why it's so hard for us to do live shows. Because <laughs> we're like a bunch of dry academia, and then and then like the little the like three brain cells that, that are fighting for control take over, and they're like, "Here's yeah. a joke about classical music." Yeah, sometimes all I'm going to say is sometimes the intrusive thoughts win. <laughs> <laughs> put that on the put that on the dust jacket for the horror vanguard like retrospective book. But no, so can, I, I think can, the, you, I think can the, you believe can you believe serious academics listen to this show? No, <laughs> like people. Well, actually, people actually I can are, because you and I are those <laughs> pe- people who actually do stuff. Listen to us. Oh dear! Thank you, everyone. Patreon.com forward backward slash horror vanguard question mark dot com dot com. <laughs> no, but so 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 the the, the shopping mall, right? The, the kind of uh, the the heyday of, of the department store. Um, like so this this is set in a shopping mall. This is set in. You know, this is the late '80s. This is this is the cresting peak. This is the zenith of the American shopping center, right? It's loaded with stores. All of those stores are open. Business is booming. People are lined up, spending their Christmas money. There are restaurants in the shopping mall. There are clothing stores. There are sports goods. You can buy anything you want to buy there, right? Uh, and this this I think is is at a really good moment for the movie Elves. To have a kind of night trapped in the, the the kind of about to collapse edifice of the shopping mall, and being beset by by fascists, and your only hope of salvation is literally a homeless guy who's Santa Claus. Let's. I think we. I think we're going to have to talk about the theory of um, destituent communism. Let's do it. <laughs> So I think I actually really agree that the department store slash mall slash shopping center as uh, analogy for the state is probably pretty appropriate Mm -hmm. Um, and actually serves to underscore the ways in which the successful capitalism in the late 80s was kind of powered by two things. It was powered by the underpaying of a certain class of labor, Dan Haggerty, and it was uh the new disposable income of this kind of like the teenage gen x's which is our three you know the sisters of anti-christmas who were also part of that like underpaid labor but they they because they have lower costs they actually have more disposable income you know they all live at home 
for example. Uh, they don't have to worry about rent. I think it's so so important that Haggerty gets evicted before he ends up living in the boiler room, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's all there, but if that if if the department store is the state in microcosm, then it is not a surprise that the the state is kind of crumbling, or the state rather doesn't really know what's happening within itself, because that's where our elves and Nazis come from, and so the subject of this, of <laughs> Like well, well, this movie. Well, one, you have the historical thing returning into the present, right? The historical thing that you're supposed to have vanquished and cast out returns inwards. Um, it's very, it's very sort of Hegelian almost. The 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 the, the Nazism was coming from within inside the house. It wasn't coming from Western Europe. And you also have this imaginative kind of surplus that can't be commodified, right? The elf does not look like the Christmas elf is supposed to. This elf is not marketable. This elf is not kind of like productive in the capitalist sense. So you have to have like the underpaid, uh, exploited and insecure subject, the one that's not dependent upon the state, but can be parasitical upon it to be the one that actually restores its integrity. So, so what you actually, what you need, what's necessary, what is the revolutionary subject is of course, uh, Santa, the outsider, the, 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 the one who's hired but is not kind of committed. Uh, the one who is the one who is like, as I said, parasitical upon the state. Um, so yeah, I think I think you can absolutely consider if you if you take it if you take the department store to be analogous to the state, you can absolutely consider you can map the kind of shifts in American capitalism onto how the department store or the shopping center or the mall is portrayed in the American cultural imagination. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think we kind of have like a RoboCop situation in, in, in this movie, right? Where like elves, elves isn't really predicting a, a horrible future where the mall becomes this site of collapse. You know, like in, in the late 80s, we're already looking at a moment where the mall, the mall is already, we're starting to fray on the edges, right? The economy is starting to tighten up. You know, we're, we're, we're leading into like successive concussive economic collapses that just keep hitting the working class harder and harder and harder up to the current moment today, where if you've been to a mall in the United States recently, they are ghost towns. You know, the, the, the shopping centers are just totally vacant. There's nothing there. And then even like, you know, like the real estate that the mall represents, like the, the, the companies that own those malls are having difficulty selling the land. You know, it is it is that it is that economically barren at this current moment. And I think that that by by highlighting that, like, oh, it's this encroaching fascism, right, that, that necessarily goes hand in hand with this kind of like because the mall it was also like a, a kind of like pseudo commons, right? Like, you know, like one of one of the last American commons, one of those last third spaces where people could congregate, um, especially young people. Right, especially uh, young young adults and teens, right, who who couldn't go to bars or anything like that. And now we we have like, and, and even that, like, a, the mall is a false commons, right, because it's patrolled by private security guards and is predicated upon spending money, much like the coffee shop. But now that that's entirely collapsed as a venue, like like it's no wonder we've arrived at this moment where we're like, oh, kids never go outside; they don't hang out in person anymore. Well, it's like, hmm, wonder why. And it's hauntological, right? It's hauntological, mm-hmm. right? Because well, the kind of interesting thing about the mall, about the shopping centre, is what does it promise, 
right? It promises you that whatever you want, you can get in one place. Like whatever you, whatever it is you want. Yeah. Like there is this kind of like boundless, almost like utopian surplus to them. I mean, th- this is why this is why they feel weird now. It's because they were retroactively the promise of something that never arrived, right? To walk through a dead mall is to be walking through the ghosts of unfulfilled potential, right? So um, Jameson has this really interesting... I don't know if I agree with it, but this interesting essay called Walmart as Utopia, Mm -hmm. where he kind of makes the argument that actually we, we always think of Utopia as this kind of like very local, very individual, very subjective thing. But what if... What, you know, what if we could arrange the distribution of goods so that they were com- like completely cut off, cut cut off from this like the logic of competition, and infrastructurally, you, there was one place that could supply you with everything that you wanted, that everything that you needed, or e- everything that you kind of desired. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that be amazing? So there is this kind of uti- it, 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 you can you can see the cracks in the foundations where the where the Nazis are getting in in the eighties and now <laughs> and now you look at them and like department stores are kind of like just just withering on the vine because one the buildings themselves are now rent extractive you know assets nobody goes there because the space has been privatized and also they can no longer ha- perform the utopian function they were supposed to perform. I, I find that really, really interesting and really compelling. Um, I, I can't think of the name of the book off the top of my head right now, but there was a book that explored Amazon as, as like, oh, well, this is, what if we looked at Amazon as if it were a centrally planned economic effort? Um, because in a way, that's kind of what Amazon is, except it works for capital and not for, you know, people yeah, who na- live. Yeah, nationalize and socialize Amazon's network of distribution and fulfillment and exactly. like give, give the United States a proper infrastructure. <laughs> Whoa, slow down there. Slow down there. The United States doesn't do infrastructure. Unless it's for cars and or privatized. Ba- 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 basically, what I believe in is death stranding socialism. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's it's a new concept. Like nothing you've heard ever. I, I hated the marketing of that game so much. It was so it was it, it was so like the marketing of like a venture capital app. We are we're introducing washing your hair in a way that you've never thought of before. Yeah. But but like this is this is the thing, right? This is the thing about the shopping center, about the mall. Um yeah, you're right. It was the place that you would go when you didn't have anywhere else to go when you were a, when you were a kid, right? You could hang out at the shopping center, you could hang out at the department store. You like maybe it would be the place that you would get your first job, maybe it would be the place that you could spend your first money. And again, there was this kind of like sense of possibility to them. But like even here, even at the, the kind of apotheosis of American 80s capitalism, like it's starting to fall apart already. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So would we like to fast forward our discussion to masculinities, mall cops, and Santa Claus? Yeah, okay, yeah. What do we what do we think about Dan Haggerty as Santa? <laughs> so I find this to be really interesting, right? Because especially now, right? Especially in our current cultural moment, there's been this interesting effort to kind of like 
recuperate Santa into like a very like masculinized vision. You know, the kind of like doddering, rosy cheeked, benevolent old man is is being phased out for this kind of like rugged ass kicking Santa Claus who who has a subscription shaving box and and uses products called like man soap. <laughs> Yeah, the 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 tactical hygiene wipe. <laughs> yeah, no, we we've got tactical Santa Claus now. Tactical hygiene wipe. Now in real tree camo, but I think like we we've got the kind of like a, a beginning motion towards that with this Dan Haggerty Santa Claus that I think like it it doesn't it, it's not quite the same thing that we have today where we've got the ass kicking Santa where we've got tactical tactical Santa Claus. But this, 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 I find to be really interesting, right? Because he's like, again, like, why is he a cop, right? Because it's, it's, it, we're giving him horror movie shorthand. He now has like, I, I think that's like a, like, I don't know, that's like one of the weakest things in this movie is making, you know, Dan Haggerty, Mall Santa, a cop. Because like ha- having him be a homeless Mall Santa employee, right, sleeping in the boiler room of the mall. We've already given his character the kind of plausible deniability that he needs to have to be in the mall after dark, right? We see we see him tape the lock shut so he can get in and out of the mall kind of surreptitiously at his leisure. And so we already have the kind of excuse we need for him to do this. And by putting on the kind of garb of Santa Claus, oh, well, like, well, then that makes sense for him taking on this kind of altruistic role. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? No, I agree with you. I I think it's I I think there there's some interesting things happening here with like the position of of so so Santa in the department store has a super interesting non-normative masculinity because what does he do all day? He does the thing that men are not supposed to do, which is mm-hmm. um emotional labor with children. Yeah. Right? There's there's that, that so that's that's something atypical for an 80s action hero and yeah this idea of like propping open the door with some like quick <laughs> gaffer tape to get in and out i actually really so he can just get outside and smoke i think is really interesting because you know he's trying to minimize the amount of time he has to work you know time theft is valid um but yeah i agree with you I don't, i'm not wild about the fact that he's an ex-cop i think it's a little bit you know cliche yeah no no i i i totally agree i totally agree with that and, and especially like so, so this is kind of like action hero stock character that I think Dan Haggerty's Mall Santa evades. And that's the kind of like... I'm back. I'm back. My headphones died. <laughs> so, so Dan Haggerty's Mall Santa in this movie is comedic because it's Dan Haggerty and because this movie is very, movie is very silly and bad. But kind of like intra the text of the movie, he's not... The movie's not making fun of him. I'm thinking of like, God, there's like a mountain of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies where where it's like, oh, what if what if Arnold Schwarzenegger, a retired CIA agent, had to run a daycare? Had to be a what? father? <laughs> like, <laughs> like wore a tutu? Like just the just the most like offensive, just banal stuff you could imagine. But this movie doesn't go there. The, 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 this movie is not poking fun at Either Dan Haggerty's character for being down on his luck, for being unhoused, for for all of these other issues, 
that's not like central to why he he's he's kind of so silly which i also think is there's kind of like a compassionate gesture within elves yeah i i I actually think that's really true and it's like actually as a model of revolutionary care i think Mm -hmm. you could do a lot worse than the department store santa like he's he is you know he's not he's not sort of like you know, he's he's not like this emotionally stoic guy. He's like he's very passionate about what he cares about. He's 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 like the defender of the innocent. But he's just a working guy. You know, he's just trying to he's just trying to get through the holiday season. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> oh, totally, totally. And now I know I know you wanted to talk about because uh, this is Christmas, and what's more what's more seasonally appropriate than mass deforestation? Well, what do you think about the ending? Because we go back, we go back to the forest with which we opened this time, post big confrontation. You know, the elf stone ritual. There is this. Uh, there's this thing in the, the the following morning. You know, Kristen is in this huddling in the forest, which has been kind of like destroyed and ravaged, mm-hmm. um, as the, as the snow starts to fall for the first time. Uh, so yeah, what what do you what are your thoughts? So I, I think this is this is like a a, a a thing that is like one of the deepest traditions in like American Gothic and American horror art and writing in, in general. But the the idea that the devil lives out in the woods, that the woods are not a safe place to be, they are not a wholesome place to be, is is really err to like American fiction, right? Like being afraid of the forest is something that like the the kind of American horror imaginary is all about. And what what kind of goes hand in hand with that is like you get figures like Grizzly Adams who by braving the woods become wild themselves, right? Like, like, you know, like Grizzly Adams is no longer fit for polite society because he has courted too long with the forest, you know, and that gives him the ability to navigate the wilds, but it's also disbarred him from returning to the, to the city, returning to civilization. And what, what what the kind of like tri tripartite aspect of that of is is you know like manifest destiny and deforestation right like as as the colonial settlers moved westward you know they they eviscerated old growth forest after old growth forest right they they laid the groundwork for a paved and gray america which is a lot of what we have today in this country like the the massive forest that used to dominate the eastern half of the united states is now farmland and parking lots yeah, and wh- why did it go? Because strip malls, because yep, malls, because car parks, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I, I think I really like that final shot, that final uh, moment in the forest, because it's a good way of explicitly tying together in a visual fashion the both the the kind of like thematic and environmental concerns of the film. Yeah, no, I, I think I think it works really well. I think I think it's a really strong ending and then like like the the kind of last scene we see is like the ultrasound of the elf fetus <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> did, did did you know that at one point in in both of john and i's careers we were hopeful serious academics looking 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 aspirationally towards the university system and now we're talking about uh demon nazi elf fetus <laughs> Uh, honestly, Demon Nazi Elf Fetus is one of my favorite Cannibal Corpse songs. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say a serious upgrade too, as far as career goals go. 
Uh, but I, I think I think the ending of this movie is is really downturn and really grim, right? Because like, like oh, like like this is not a you know like the, the resistance to fascism is a generational project. You know, like like you, you know, born into a fascist moment, you will carry a fascist. You know, like 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 a like coming in from the woods and having like burrs stuck to your boots. You've got the kind of seed of fascist on you now. And you yeah, have to I mean, you have to take take reins and deal with that. Yeah, because it, it isn't this what fascism does? It reproduces itself literally. Yeah, and this is and this like, is also it oh, gets inside you, <laughs> like it gets inside you, and it tries to reproduce itself for the next generation. And, and I think this is this is also really important too, in like the post post Trump American context, right? Because Trump loaded the courts with with far right judges. And we've got we we had Roe versus Wade gutted here in the United States and just d- destroyed completely, like leaving abortion access like completely desolated in some states and and penalized even further in others. And like 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 again, a lot of this movie is about family abolition and control over gestational labor. Like yes. we can only hope that this woman has control over her gestational futures and potentials, and and isn't cajoled coerced or manipulated by a fascist state looking for an easy workforce into giving birth to elf nazi antichrist <laughs> I, mean, I mean it was it was it was also beautiful and also theoretically like interesting and then we got to the the, no, the final three set three words this is but but what i will say is elves is a better movie than rosemary's baby oh oh what a way to annoy everybody as we wrap this up. <laughs> that's that's you, you listeners. Don't be annoyed by the truth. Embrace it. Let it warm you. Let let that anger heat you in these cold winter nights. Also, also, and I've said this on other episodes. Uh, Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem is what if someone competent made Rosemary's Baby? Once again, once again, we finish that Rosemary's Baby. We finish with Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so, so the last thing I want to say about this movie is a really quick note about something really hopeful in this and really interesting. And a shout out to Library Punk and our good friends over there. Um, Jay, Justin, and Sadie, thank you for doing Library Punk. Um, but so Dan Haggerty, suspicious, suspicious of these Nazi elves, but unable to confirm his suspicions, uh, uh, turns to that great bastion of fascist resistance, that source of of free socialist intellect that that prototype of a better future his local public library and and in a brilliant scene goes up to the librarian and he's like i'm, I'm looking for um, information on elf nazis and the librarian just kind of rolls her eyes and she's like occult sciences 666 <laughs> where dan Haggerty not only finds a book about nazi elves but like finds the address of the professor who wrote it and like, because yeah, that—that's how the library works, folks. <laughs> That's—that is how the library works. It's—it's it's just, it's just this like brilliant exploration of information seeking and horror, right? It's not his, and this—this this is actually something that that kind of like redeemed him as a police officer to me, because when he goes to the cops, and he's like, "Hey, cops, I used to work with. I think there's some evil shit going on. We gotta like load up and go handle it." All the other cops are like, get out of here, Grizzly Adams. Get out of here, Grizzly Adams, you drunk. <laughs> and then he goes to the library and the librarian is like clearly overworked and tired, but she helps him. And like the Nazi elves probably win. Elves? Elves. The Nazi elves probably win if this librarian doesn't like reluctantly show Dan Haggerty to the book on Nazi elves. 
And I think this is this is exactly this is exactly the point that we should finish on, which is like, what is the library? What does it represent? And it represents not just an accumulation of knowledge, but it represents a living, um, almost incarnate historical record. Right? Knowledge is not atemporal, but is rooted in the ongoing and unfolding historical struggle that occurs both imaginatively and economically against the enemies of human resistance. Ooh, I think that is a beautiful place to end. Another Horror Vanguard holiday special. <laughs> oh, oh, happy happy holidays, everyone. Happy Yuletide season. We have some more Ghoultide episodes heading your way. And unfortunately, uh, perhaps fortunately, depending on your uh, artistic tastes, none of them feature Dan Haggerty. (laughs) Cut, print, done. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.